Pete is uh, picked up some sort of stomach bug, and he's doing really just terrible. Uh, I was on the phone with him uh, yesterday, and he said he was basically in the fetal position for about nine hours straight. Uh, so he called me up, and he said, hey, do you have something that you've uh, maybe preached before or taught before that you haven't given to the people at Church of Bergen. I said, yeah, brother, I'd be happy to do that. So here I am. Uh, he will be back, Lord willing, next week preaching to you guys the Word of God faithfully. Uh, happy Father's Day, to, excuse me, <clears throat> to everyone. Um, hmm. I guess not a happy Father's Day for Pastor Mike, but that's okay. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I want to encourage you dads uh, with the Word of God today. Um, and before we do that, let me just, let me just pray for us, and uh, I'll read the passage, and, and we'll get going. Father, we thank you that you are the true, heavenly, and perfect Father. Uh, I ask, Lord, that you would send your Spirit to fill me, to faithfully preach your Word. I pray for the fathers in here. I pray for the dads who maybe feel like failures. I pray that this word today would lift them up, encourage them, empower them. I pray for the dads who are flourishing, that you would keep them humble, that you would protect them from boasting and their self-righteousness of being a quote-unquote good dad. I pray for the families who uh, used to have a father, but he's gone. I pray that this word today would empower them, encourage them, fill them with your love. Lord, I ask that you would um, work in these people's hearts, make them receptive to what you would have to say to them today. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 22, going all the way down to uh, chapter 2, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be some some Bibles in the back here. If you just raise your hand, some guys in the back would be happy to, to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, you can have that. It's yours to keep. Um, it's our gift to you. First Peter 1. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it 
you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The main point of this passage can be found in verse 22, the second half of verse 22. If you look at the second half of verse 22, the main point is found there. It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We know this is the main point of the verse because everything before it is leading up to that point. Having purified your hearts by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. For example, you might say, referring to, to all those who just uh, finished school for the year and now summer break, having finished his homework, the boy went outside to play. The main point of that sentence is the boy went outside to play. Everything else before that is leading up to the main point. This is the main point. And we know that everything after this, verse 23 to verse 25, is not the main point too. It's because it is simply a reason or a ground supporting that command. How do I know that? Because the next word after the main point is since. It means because. It's giving the reason for, the, it's supporting the main point, which is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, are simply the implications of all of that. Notice the word so at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because in light of all of this truth that we have seen, this is how we are to live. Let's look more in depth at the nature of this command, though. If you read verse 22 at the beginning, it describes this love as a brotherly love. You've heard of the Greek word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. Right? We know about Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love. So this is referring to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians. So if you are a Christian, then you are commanded to love one another in this church. If you are not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian, this may sound exclusive to you. But the Bible nowhere tells Christians to only love other Christians, because it does say love your neighbor. And besides, it makes perfect sense. Your deepest friendships should be with those who share your deepest loves. If you are a Christian and you love Christ, would it not make sense that your dearest friends would be those who cherish and love Christ as well? Now, we are commanded to love those who have the same deepest foundational love that we have. What does this brother love look like, though? First, it's sincere. It's sincere. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Sincere is describing this love. That word can be translated not hypocritically. There's no hidden agendas. No hit, there's nothing. When you love this person, there's no ulterior motive in loving this person that you are serving alongside of in the church. This love is an agenda-free love without a mask. 
I couldn't help, I apologize for this analogy, but I couldn't help of thinking about an Easter bunny. Um, what my daughter and I were in Garden State Plaza during Easter time, there's an Easter bunny, those creepy little bunnies that are waving and taking picture with the kids. And on the outside, the bunny's like, you know, the bunny's like this, but inside, who knows? I'm not kidding. I, don't, I do not want to know what is going on inside of that bunny. Similarly, when you are loving one another in the church, are you looking good on the outside, but inside is, is there something else? Are there other ulterior motives in your love for them? So loving someone mainly to get a job, to establish a reputation as a nice person. You know that, right? I mean, I mean, the things that I'm about to list, I didn't go around investigating to other people saying, hey, tell me some ulterior motives that you have. I simply looked at my own heart and say, when have there been times when I have loved someone, not because I wanted what is best for them, but because I had some ulterior motive that was not sincere? Loving someone to get a job interview, to get a job, to establish a reputation as a nice person. Do you just want to be seen as a nice person? I mean, think about that. There are people, I'm sure, that they are enslaved to this idea. I just want people to see me as a nice person. Are you loving people mainly to network Establish a business partnership. Find out someone's dirt. We do that sometimes. We love people to, to, to get them to trust us and to divulge to, and to, to disclose some of their, their dirt inside what's going on in their lives because we love hearing about other people's dirt. Maybe you want to get access to an inner circle. And since this is, I, this isn't in the, my notes, but since this is referring to love within the local church, why are you here? Why have you chosen church at Bergen? Is it mainly because you think it's a new and upcoming church? Maybe I can advance to a higher position or, oh, I know this guy, so I'm going to start loving them and hopefully I can get up the ladder Or some of you maybe even love people to ease a guilty conscience. You're overwhelmed with guilt, so you feel that by being loving to people, it somehow will atone for the guilt that is stacked up inside of your heart. These are not sincere forms of brotherly love because these things do not want what's best for the person you're loving. The brotherly love commanded here is a love that wants best for the person you are loving. It's Father's Day. Fathers, when, when you put your kids down to bed or you send them off to college or you're sitting down with them having coffee, I don't know, and you're looking at them and you're having one of those moments, you just want good for them. You, you, don't, care, you, you don't care about it, you just want good for them. 
Similarly, when you see people in this church, do you want good for them? Like, do you, do you see people in the eyeballs and say, I just want good for you? I have no other ulterior motives. I just want good for you. This is the type of brotherly love. Secondly, it's earnest. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This word earnest means to be fully stretched out as far as it can go, like a, like a rock climber's rope when they're dangling off a clip on a rope. And if that's too scary for you, think of a tug of war in the middle of a match when the rope is tight. Earnest love is when you, you're going to the max. You're stretching yourself to the limit to, to get this person the good that you want for them. This is what we mean by earnest love. You might say it's a no slack love. But the earnest is not being used to describe a rope. It's described for your love. This brotherly love stretches you. It makes you feel stretched thin. Lots of young fathers in this church. I've spoken to many before. You got full-time jobs. Some of them have multiple jobs, and they're their wives stop working, and so they, there's less income, and there's more kids, and they're just, they're just exhausted. They feel stretched thin. Welcome to fatherhood. Christian love is costly. It stretches you. You should feel stretched thin, but not the type of stretched thin that makes you bitter towards everyone else because you're going the extra mile rather the type of stretch thin that makes you feel joy. The Christian life does not consist in slacking off in their love for people. Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus even described it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If you try to slack off and preserve, you're going to lose your life. But if you say, forget me, I will bear my cross because Christ bore his cross for me. And you will find eternal life. The Christian life of brotherly love is a cross-bearing love. So not only do you want good for the people, you are willing to be stretched thin for their sakes. Now, you might be thinking, so we're supposed to love one another. That's it? Doesn't everyone already know that? It seems very cliche, seems very common sense. You may be thinking that. You may be even thinking, oh, that's kind of, I, didn't, I never thought about the sincere or the earnest, but basically I knew that you had to love each other. Here's the thing, I left out the last and most problematic thing about this command. It is from a pure heart. It's from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So all of this loving comes out of a heart that is pure. A heart that is pure is a heart that has no impurities. There are no mixtures of sinful desires that are controlling the way you love someone. 
the command of brother love is a very problematic command for every person. For the secular non-religious person and the religious person. We're going to look at both of those. If you would consider yourself a secular non-religious person, there are many people we know who are not religious yet are more loving than religious people. You may know some atheists, you may know some people who would not consider themselves religious, but you are shocked by how loving they are. You need to admit that you don't need to be religious to be a loving person. You need to know that it can be insulting when religious people accuse those who are unbelievers of an inability to be moral. That's simply not the case. But why is it problematic for this person? Simply because of this question, what is the ultimate motivation for the secular, non-religious person for loving people? What is the ultimate motivation? And these people might say, you might say, well, it's the right thing to do. That's what, those are the morals that I choose to live by. That's what I feel is right. And that's precisely the problem. Not only do you not believe that there's a God out there holding you accountable, But most of all, you are simply obeying what feels right to you. You either love others to make yourself feel better about you or to get something else in return. In other words, you are mainly loving others to boost your sense of self-worth. Thus, your motives are impure and rotten to the core and are falling well short of the command here to love one another earnestly and sincerely from a pure heart. Furthermore, if you continue loving people with this motivation, what happens when they don't love you back? Feelings of outrage and superiority must flow out of you because you've been exhausting yourself at the expense of you to love this person, and when they don't return the favor... Rage, superiority, frustration, bitterness. But just in case, to protect you from thinking that I'm simply asking you to become a religious person, that is far from what I'm saying. Because the command of brother love is also problematic for those of you who consider yourself very religious. Because even though you may be trying to please God, Ultimately, the religious person believes that if they live up to God's standard of brother love, then God will accept and bless them. So not only are you loving these people for your own sake, which is selfishness, you are using it as a means to control God to merit the blessing of God. What you want is the blessing of God not what is what is best for people. And it always leads to self-righteousness because you have established your ability to be a good person and earn God's favor through your religious behavior. Thus, your motivations are impure and rotten to the core. And once again, falling short of the command of brother love here, which is sincere and earnest. So it's basically what I'm saying is it's impossible for the non-religious and the religious person 
to obey this commandment that's God giving us today. Before I address the question, so what do we do now? Let me ask you some questions. To basically test yourself. See if you fall in one of these camps. Do you find yourself holding grudges towards people for someone, for something wrong they did to you after you had been so good to them? Do you hold grudges easily? Do you get frustrated and annoyed when you do a favor for someone and they do not do something nice for you in return? Here's a question. What type of people are you most loving to? Those who have an abundance of resources or can offer you something in return? Do you mainly love your spouse because it makes you feel like a better person or do you mainly love your spouse to get something from them in return? Are you a nice person on Sundays so that you can say to your soul, I am a good Christian? Do you merely do that to validate and justify yourself by saying, I'm a good Christian? If you are convicted by these questions, it's very possible that you may be falling in one of these two camps of the religious or non-religious. So what do we do? Here's what we know. Here's what we do know. Although the secular and religious person cannot obey this verse because it needs to be from a pure heart, we know it is possible because these people in, described in this verse are doing it. They're doing it. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. How were they able to do this? And now we're going to get into the true source, the true source and power of Christian brother love. First, they were made pure to love purely. It says, having purified your souls, which is the core of who they were. How did that happen? It says, by your obedience to the truth. So there was this truth that encountered them that demanded their obedience. This is profound because it was truth that purified their souls, not themselves. Something outside of them engaged them and purified their souls. They had dirty souls, then a singular truth. Notice how it says the truth, by your obedience to the truth. This truth confronted them with such power that they can do nothing else but obey it. So you can't love one another purely until you yourself have been purified by obeying this truth. What is the truth? Which leads us to the second reason these people were able to live out brother love. They were born again by the pure, imperishable word of God. Look at the last part of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The truth they encountered and were made new and pure by was the word of the living God. Through the living and abiding word of God. Jesus himself said of God's word in reference to his disciples in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify, another fancy word for purify them. Purify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God they encountered was so alive, so imperishable, so real, so powerful, that it literally created something new inside of them. They were born again. John 3, you've got Nicodemus, that really religious guy, comes to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, religious man, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. He's like, what? How can I go back in my mother's womb? Jesus I'm not talking about that birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. They were born a second time in a spiritual sense, not physical, and in a literal sense, not figurative. Their hearts were like a barren desert, then all of a sudden a flower sprouts up for the first time. The word of God was the eternal seed that went into the grounds of their dark, dead hearts and life. The pure word of God created a new heart and soul inside of them, enabling them to love one another sincerely and earnestly. This is how most of you probably became Christians. This is how you become a Christian. You're reading the word of God one day. You're sitting in a church service. You're somewhere where the word of God is, and all of a sudden you're going, oh my Lord, God is speaking to me. And you believe. It is no longer just words on a page. It is no longer just words coming out of a preacher's mouth. It is the word of the living God speaking to you. You encountered something more real than anything this life could offer. The word of God, not funny stories, change people. Clear exposition of the word of God changes people, not clever storytelling. Fathers, if you want to be changed into a God-glorifying dad. Confront your own heart with the word of God. Where else are you going to get changed? Where else are you going to be changed but by the word of God? This is why I'm going to be careful that I don't sound like I'm, but whatever. This is why I wake up before my wife and my daughters, and I read this book. There is, there is stuff inside of me that could kill my family, 
there is an enemy out there that is deceitful. It's clever. So I wake up before them. Change me. Change me. Change me. Day after day after day after day. What else is going to change you? And look at how the writer Peter describes this word in verse 24. It's beautiful. He compares the hollow and perishable nature of the things of man to the rock-solid granite and imperishable nature of the word of God that created this new heart inside of them. Verse 24. For, he's describing this word of God referred to in verse 23. All flesh is created things. is like grass. All its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers like my front lawn. <laughs> Seriously though, you look at it, it just, just withers. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. These people encountered an eternal word from the Lord and it came with such groundbreaking force that it disintegrated, destroyed their old and pure hearts and gave them new hearts that were made to love God and his people. That's power. I'll be brief. I don't know, I wrestle to this day when I was saved. I don't, it was either when I was young and my mom came into my room, laid down in bed with me and shared the gospel with me and I said a prayer and I, I think I believed Jesus then. All I know is today, Christ is my treasure. I know that today. But there was a time at the end of my college career, it was second semester of my senior year and what I'm doing now is I'm trying to illustrate for you what the power of the word of God, how it changes people and it confronts them with the reality of the word of God as more to be desired than gold and anything else in this world could offer. I wanted to be a dentist. I'm not bashing dentists. I wanted to be a dentist because when I was younger, the person with the biggest house in our neighborhood was a dentist. So I said, Okay, I've heard that marriages fail because of financial reasons, so I'll be a dentist to have lots of money so that I could just eliminate the possibility of my marriage failing for financial reasons. Yes. Go to college. Go my whole career. I'm about to take the dental aptitude test, the DATs. And I'm about to take this exam for a big physiology exam. And all of a sudden... I have this thought, why am I doing this? Why am I spending my life to be a dentist if all I want to do is create a financial foundation for my future? How barren. How empty. So I panicked. Second semester, senior year, what am I doing? By the way, I'm, in, I'm engaged to Karen, so she, she thinks she's going to marry a dentist. <laughs> Not good. 
Yeah, yeah, it's bad. She's not here, so. I panic and I go to the Word of God and I go to 1 Samuel 3. I go to 1 Samuel 3. It's a story when God calls Samuel. Eli is a priest and he's kind of ministering and mentoring this guy named Samuel. And it says the Word of God was, was, was not around in those days. And three times God called to Samuel and each, the first two times, Samuel runs back to Eli and he's like, oh, you called me, Eli. Eli's like, no, it wasn't me. The third time he calls him again and, and, and Eli says, next time you hear that, I want you to say this. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. When I read that, I felt as if the living God himself was telling me, stand up and say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Immediately, I dropped dentistry, and I, have, I vowed for the rest of my life to teach the word of God. And as that passion has never ceased. What I want to do, what I'm doing in that, is trying to illustrate to you the power of the word of God to disintegrate empty worldly, dying hearts and making them alive again by the word of God. What is this word, though? What is the word? I keep talking about the word of God. What is that? And how do they encounter? Look at verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What was the word? It was the good news. That's the gospel. How do they receive it? Through a preacher. The good news of the gospel is that neither a religious person nor an irreligious person could ever love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor, neighbor as themselves. But there is one who did, and his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ came to this world to love those who are rotten to the core, and he loved them so earnestly strenuously being stretched in his love, not only to the limit, but beyond his limit, being stretched out and slaughtered on a cross. Jesus' love stretched him out to the point of being nailed to the cross for our sins. The gospel is that you and I deserve to be stretched out on that cross and cut off from God's love, but Jesus Christ came like a true and divine brother and was stretched out and nailed to the tree for us and so that you and I could be his eternal brothers and loved eternally by his father in heaven this is the truth that these people obeyed in verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth how do you obey the gospel you repent and believe repent and believe the gospel that's how you be made new you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the true source of brother love. A renewed heart created by the unconditional love of God. In order to truly love someone from a pure heart, you must first receive the unconditional love of God that overflows into love for others. The Christian motivation for brother love is agape. 
which is what the word is in verse 22, love one another from a pure heart. That's agape, one another from a pure heart. It's the unconditional love of God. There is no sense of selfishness or superiority precisely because the love that you were shown in Christ was all of grace, totally, completely undeserved. Romans 5 verse 5 says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So now we can freely love one another out of the abundance of our hearts. Not because we're trying to earn anything, because we already have everything in Christ. The love flows freely and unconditionally through the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's constantly there. So my heart is full to pour out more love to other people, not to get something in return, because all that I have is in Christ. So I'm free to offer everything to everyone else, expecting nothing in return. So what do we do now? This is how we'll close. What does this look like in our everyday lives? That's what chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 get into. Notice the word so, so therefore, because of all this, because of verses 22 to 25, we must obey chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Because you were born again by the word of God for a sincere brother love, Therefore, do the following things in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 in order to fulfill this love for one another. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Notice that all of these things that you must put away, look at each one of those. Malice, that's the intention to do evil or harm towards someone. Deceit, tricking someone by holding back the truth for your own personal gain. Hypocrisy, pretending to be more spiritual or put together than you actually are. Envy, resenting someone because they have something that you don't have. Slander, sharing true or false information about someone with the intention of damaging their reputation. These are all community disintegrating sins. They are utterly poisonous to a church community. Therefore, put them away. How do we put them away, though? Verse 2. Like newborn infants... He's referring back to being born again. What do babies do? What do they need after they're born? Mom's milk. Now. They need it. He's saying like newborn infants, like them, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's command. The command is crave the spiritual milk. What's that? It's the word of God and the gospel. And notice it's described as pure, right? By your obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls, love one another from a pure heart, long for the pure spiritual milk. 
How does longing for the word of God, the milk, get rid of your sins in verses 1? Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The goodness of God and the word of God tastes better than sinning against the children of God. So for your homework, I would encourage you, think through all of the ways that the sweetness of the gospel in the word of God would protect you from the sins listed in verse 1. That's homework. Go check those out. But this can only be done if you have tasted the goodness of the gospel. If you've tasted the goodness of the gospel, have you actually tasted the goodness of the gospel in the word of God? Have you tasted it? If not, go back into the word and ask God to give you spiritual taste buds. Think much upon the gospel, much upon it, and it will purify your hearts, enabling you to freely love one another earnestly, sincerely, from a pure heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, again, the privilege to teach your word. I, I ask, Lord, that as long as this was faithful and true, that it will have landed upon the hearts of those before me. That the word of God would continue to purify our hearts by the unconditional grace-saturated love that you have for sinners in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to free us from these community disintegrating sins, purify our hearts more deeply, that we can love one another sincerely and earnestly as Christ gave himself up for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.